Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. This is Tim Williams and I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. My brilliant and somewhat eloquent uh, guest today is David Cowens, who's just retired after 24 years of running one of the biggest social and affordable housing providers in the world, Places for People. We talk a lot about social homes, we talk a lot about affordable housing, we talk a lot about places, which I think is really important and so does he. But above all, we kind of talk about people and the people benefits we see from having a great housing start in life and having some opportunity to get onto the housing ladder. So this is a great uh, interview and discussion with, I think, uh, a superb guest. Enjoy it. Uh, hello, David Cowens. Uh, how are you? Uh, well, this evening in Australia and this morning in London. I'm very well, Tim Williams. How are you? Um, we're going to talk about everything, including uh, what you've been doing for the last 30 years or something. But uh, let's just position you. Let's just position you and say we're going to talk to somebody who has only recently stepped down from creating, I think it's the biggest social housing provider in the world. But no, very, it's, it's getting there. It's large. It was very, very large. Um, and we're going to talk about how you know how you did that, and but also so we're going to talk about your greatest hits, right? We're going to talk about what you're doing at the moment, and then we're going to talk about the future of whatever we want to talk about. But it could be about um, housing and and also some of the interesting things that you're up to, because you're actually chairing something. I think is it called Wonderwall? Well, there's a few things I'm doing. Tim, a few things. Which I'm not going to tell you about. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, but because I've never been retired before, so I don't know how to do it. So let's do the uh, let's do the greatest hits social housing stuff first, right? So you you were group chief executive and chair. Anyway, tell us of places yeah, for people. I was group, group chief executive of places for people. But before that, I guess um, what's interesting, I'd spent a lot of time in local government, so I ended up being the uh, chief executive. Well, what do they call them now? Um, Director of Housing and Urban Renewal at Birmingham City Council, which is the UK's largest local authority with a million people. So it's quite interesting. And I started off actually uh, right at the um, the customer-facing end of housing, which is not that common. Uh, I started off as a sort of housing officer, really. So I came um, through the ranks, if that's still a permissible term, um, and really understood how, um, I guess from personal experience, local government works, which a lot of people don't get for me. So you didn't, and, start uh, in the de- you didn't start in the development side of housing at all? No, you were... I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. I, I came into that later on. Um, and I also had 18 months in Birmingham being the Director of Public Affairs, responsible for public affairs, urban policy, um, everything everything that makes the city work, really. So um, it was quite an interesting bit of alchemy, really, I guess. Um through chance and happenstance, and isn't that the way life works? So I did that, and then I joined, then I joined North British Housing Association, um, and it just seemed to me to be a sleeping giant. It was a traditional provider of affordable housing, not about 40,000 homes, um, and I guess in the Australian context, that's pretty big. But Yeah. Well, let's just pause before we go down this route because we need to explain to people who are not just listening either in the UK or Australia, but internationally, North British Housing Association. What what is or was a housing association in, in the UK when you took it over? It's a community interest company. 
Um, it's technically not for profit, although I don't even understand what that term means anymore. Um, and it um, provided accommodation largely on the back of government grant for people who couldn't afford the market, put simply, right? So there are community interest companies in America, Canada, um, and, and, and other parts of the world. Community housing is probably in most parts of the world. Similar type, rules different, laws different, but the same principle. How do you get discounted rent property to poorer people? But over time, it turned into support home ownership and all sorts of other things. But that's essentially so, what it was. So when you when you took over this sleeping giant back in uh, in the well mid nineties, nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, right. So new Labour government as well to put it to position it. There's Blair coming around as well. So what did you do with this beast? over time well it, three things became evident to me and a lot of these are things i'm going to say are about thematics really one it struck me that um move, producing housing where only poor people live wasn't good for them or society and it wasn't me who made this up they were telling me that um and they were telling me that their their, their siblings or more importantly their kids the minute they got a job moved away so communities were being constantly decapitated of their entrepreneurialism, their civic leadership, and their, their entrepreneurialism, which didn't strike me as great. And more importantly, the communities themselves didn't like it either. So the first thing we did was move to mixed tenure. So the idea was, instead of just having a whole area of affordable rent, we would try and provide affordable sale, outright sale, market rent, try and create some choice in the area. Now, this is received wisdom now, but in 90, 1997, um, I think some people thought it was the work of the devil, frankly. Um, somehow it was a bad thing. I still don't understand that logic. So that was one theme. And if we were going to be mixed tenure, we had to do other things. So that was one of the genesis of our, our process. And we started to get, get into um, building for sale, market rent, because to make that ambition work, you have to do those things. Second big issue, we relied on others for land and construction. And I get the arguments about risk and reward. I understand all that. But it became evident to us we weren't getting the best sites. We weren't getting the best properties. And to be honest, people in affordable rented property are entitled to the same standards as anybody else, in my view. So if we we're going to tackle that, we had to get into um, the development process. So we had to get into land. We had to get in. And none of this is without difficulty or, or easy. And it took a long time, but we started to get into the front end of the development process to control more of the location, the typology, and the quality of what we were building. So that was that changed our process. And the third big issue for me, and I think it's a big theme, is that affordable housing providers virtually everywhere have a problem because of their structure and history. They find difficulty getting equity. Now, any business is a mix of equity, debt, and previous profit, but they were only dealing with one or two of those elements. So they were always going to be not the most best funded. I mean, they're very well funded in the UK, but they could be better, it struck me. So that meant we needed to look at ways of getting equity into the business. That was a long term project. It was fraught with all sorts of difficulty, political and economic and financial. Um, and in the PFP case, we created our own fund manager. That's one answer. Um, and there was a sort of fourth underlying theme, which is 
I used to say to people, how hard can it be? And people would raise their eyebrows and all. Because it struck me that people use phrases like thinking outside the box without really understanding what they meant. Who said there was a box anyway? And who constructed it? And what, what if we just pretended it wasn't there at all, right? Now, this was crazy talk in 1997. <laughs> that, that, that idea that there is no box sums up your career entirely. It's yeah. <laughs> because of the box. the box. Well, correct. And then people would spend vast amounts of energy and intellectual effort talking outside a box that maybe didn't exist at all. You know, right. so, and by the way, claim kudos and radicalism for doing so, which always made me laugh. Um, so that was the big issue. A ruthless pragmatism ran through the organization. And pragmatism gets a bad rap, it strikes me, because it's perceived as not pure or something. But I mean, if you look at a definition of pragmatism, it's an approach that evaluates beliefs and terms on the basis of their practical applicability. That sounds very cool to me. Yeah, but uh, you and I agree on one thing, which is the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So, you know, the, yeah. uh, the issue is, is, is it's not it's, it's not good for the social housing movement to have great objectives and not to have the capacity and the exactly. wherewithal to do the right thing. Before we go there, you need to tell listeners of the scale of growth that this strategy resulted in. So give us well, the story it's of the growth. It's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say it was out difficulty. Yeah. And by the way, it's still continuing to, to this day. My successors, both on the board and in executive leadership, are now trying to build on that legacy, which is great. It's how it should be. No organization is owned by anybody in it, and we are stewards, um, hopefully creating a better, better legacy. Um, and some of these things are long-term. So one big site, 8,500 homes, is still going through planning after 13 years. You've got to have a long-term mindset. But when North British is 40,000, um, and Place People today manages and owns over 200, and a, I think it's, is it 20,000 now? 220,000 homes in every tenure, because that was right. the other thing. We wanted to work in student housing, in market rent, and for sale. They build 2,000 homes a year directly, as well as acquiring them. Um, so it, it really is an interesting operation, really. But so I don't know if I, I read, uh, is that an asset base? I may have got this number wrong of like almost no, it's, five, it's, it's, five it's billion. Owned and managed. It's owned and managed. So that's all all asset classes. So right. like 220 odd thousand block management, private rented sector. Because the other big issue for me was it became evident that management is the Cinderella service and it ought not to be. So we were developing these mixed tenure neighborhoods. Some of them were really, really good, but they weren't being managed properly. So 18 months later, they weren't as good as they could have been. So we started to develop an end-to-end -end offer where we managed everything. So we acquired some build the rent and some private rental sector managers. We acquired a block manager. We acquired a student business. So in we were the only manager of the whole neighborhood. And that's a big issue internationally about how the management's done and the quality of the management. So we ended up with about 70 odd thousand um, affordable owned, um, quite a lot of private sector owned and quite a lot managed. So the, the way it works in the UK is organizations are asked what they own and manage and the total is 220,000. Right, and is that all in the UK or you've got somewhere, somewhere else? That's all in the UK. 
Um, and uh, could you say a bit about um, how you get money? What's the what's the historic change? You know, you used to get grant, and that's yeah. I think I may be out of date, diminished. But you've been more entrepreneurial and getting access to other money, as you said, you built the equity base. So uh, how did that work? There's a gradual process. You're right. I mean, in the UK, houses associations were largely funded by government grants. It started off at 100%. And over time, as it happens in a lot of state financial regimes, it started to um, be cut back. I'm trying to use the words carefully. And some of it was because the sector was good at raising capital. So it raised a lot of bank debt. It raised quite a lot of bonds, sometimes yeah. in the euro market, sometimes internationally, in America, Japan, all over the world. And it also still gets a degree of grant, but very, very small now. And increasingly, one of the elements for community housing organizations is their ability to manage their own assets. So if they're churning a proportion of their assets every year, they can have another income stream as they commercially manage their real estate. So this idea that you uh, haven't hold forever affordable homes doesn't bear the reality or the pragmatism of managing a big property business. Right. And equally, right. if you marry that with the ability to allow people to, to buy their own homes, because who's against that, right? Um, then that makes a lot of sense. You become more relevant to more people. So... So you became very big. Some innovations that you did weren't you amongst the first people to go uh, places for people to go to the market for a bond? Yeah, we were the first people to do a bond. We were the first people to do um, a retail bond directly to small savers. Because I've always been fascinated about why people can't interact at a small level in the housing market. So why, why you need a big deposit to buy a house? Why you need a lot of money to buy a house? Um, so I've been fascinated by that. We tried an order, it's called an order book for retail bonds. Um, and on the day we did it in the London Stock Exchange, we uh, knocked Tesco out of the market. So I don't understand why there isn't more of that. There's a load of detail about um, cost of finance, especially now. But I think it deserves more uh, attention than it's had before. I think it's about to get that, actually. The, uh, is that, could you run that by me again? So a small investor can the, the buy into price, you by getting a yeah. piece of a bond? Yes, that's right. It was 140 million. Yeah. And from memory, the smallest ticket price was two grand. So rather than have your two grand down to the post office, you could put it into this housing bond. And we were offering a, from memory, 5% at the time. Right. Uh, but the economics of that often doesn't work, and you need to be quite a big organization to work in the first place, so it doesn't work for smaller organizations. Although I don't understand why they don't bond together. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're about to go through an experiment, I think, over here, um, prompted by a friend of mine who is working for the uh, federal government to uh, sponsor, to get the, the superannuation funds more directly involved. The problem, I always think, is if you don't increase supply at the same time, you're just adding to the price of a home. But we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about that. So that's really good. What what did people? What did you do with 140 million? By the way, what's it? We invested it in uh, new housing. Right. That's what we did, and um, I think there's mileage to do those things as well. And coming back to your point about the supers, 
Yeah. It's a partial answer to my earlier question. How do you get equity into, into housing to boost additionality? Yeah. So what drives me is a desire to make a difference. Sounds corny and obvious, but it really, it really drives me. So if it doesn't make a difference, why are we doing it? So I'm less bothered about who does something, that whether it happens or not. Yeah. Again, yeah. lots of people will say they agree, but their behaviour suggests otherwise. Um, but, yeah, just to explain to people, uh, this may be a, an urban myth that I either believed or I propagated myself, right? This is because I you know I do that now and again. Is the <laughs> is, is it is it is it the case that because of your robustness and because of the regulatory regime, which in the UK effectively government would step in if there was if there was any danger of a of a building society or a, sorry a social housing provider going down that was the that was my notion of what we were up to when we were i was working in the government back in the 25210 there was a kind of implied guarantee more than that that we would make somebody else take over a struggling rsl if you like register social landlord because of that regime and because of your robustness you could borrow more cheaply in the market than a lend lease well we borrowed more cheaply until recently for sure right, right? yeah yeah um but also some of the issues were our reputation and what started starts to happen is there's a sort of sector-wide view taken and then it starts to break down in about individual views yeah. individual organizations so a lot of organizations were rated uh, by moody's and standards and poor and fitch you know we started to be pretty mature in these markets and you can see a differentiation between the various businesses. So that starts to happen. And it will happen in a more mature market in other parts of the world. But we were able to raise finance relatively um, cost-effectively. But there again, we were getting people to rent properties that might yield 4.5% anyway. So if you're borrowing that or higher, it made it difficult to make it work. And that's why grant worked. It made right. a difference. Right. So. Right, but let's go towards the people that you've, you've served a bit now. So, they, they, so we've done a bit of the context, we'll come back to it. You grew this thing with the help of uh, talented people you were appointed, no doubt. Uh, but you, you grew it really significantly, you did a lot of uh, financial innovation, uh, I think, and developed the asset base and the robustness. Uh, but then you did lots of interesting, multi-tenured, interesting kind of diverse um, kind of units, 10 years and that's all really interesting let's go there let's talk about the people side of this because and then also let's talk also about it's related to who who should be in subsidized housing in a sense because one of the things that i'm quite militant about and I'm, I'm doing a report at the moment um by the way when i say i'm doing a report at the moment i've been trying to do it for about 18 months but anyway essentially <laughs> it, it argues that the, that that we can't get progress on even raising ownership levels anymore because the moment a, a unit in australia goes on, on on the market it gets bought by a, an existing homeowner who then rents it out right so we've got a real problem of ownership of stalls uh and, and actually in western society it seems, it seems to be partly because of these reasons so i think the government working with rsl's community housing providers needs to get back into promoting the ownership game shared equity as much as rental i'll come back to that discussion but you've got a variety of people uh in your various tenured homes could you say a bit about you know the different kinds of people and the different kinds of experience yes. that you're trying to give them yes so if you combine that desire to make a difference with a desire to be as relevant as possible to as many people as possible 
then you're inevitably driven down a path where you look at different offers for different people. You treat them like real customers. Uh, I personally think that housing is the least consumer-focused part of the economy virtually everywhere. And it needs to be more consumer-focused. So we started to develop a lot of the UK government programs about shared ownership, about various forms of health and buy. We're all structured about how how one answered the question, how do people who couldn't afford it get into the home ownership ladder? Yeah. So there are a myriad of programs um, to try and make that work. As an organization, uh, place people and many other um, providers were heavily engaged in that. We wanted to provide a range of options for people. We wanted to allow people to own. Most people weren't against the right to buy as such. It was the use of the receipt that was the problem. So we weren't replacing the properties we were selling. So just to explain, be, we have to explain. So okay. we have to explain that to people who don't understand that the, the when the right Thatcher, to buy in the UK was a right given to people to buy their existing social rented property at a significant discount. Right. Um, and that, that on its own is fine. But they, in the local authority sector, the money then raised was taken from yeah. local yeah. government and kept by the exchequer. So there was no obvious route to replace those properties lost. Now, if it had been a more sensible churn where you sold on properties perhaps with a government discount, and then use the resources to build new ones, I don't think there would have been a problem. And by the way, it would still be running today. But it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. sort of ran into the sand to a degree. So there are some lessons there for people who are thinking about this. Put something in place that churns capital so you're able to keep it going. And any subsidy has to come outside of the real estate capital proposition so that you can keep the thing going in perpetuity. If you break any of those bits, it tends to run into the sand. So the people we wanted to help were young folk who couldn't get a property themselves. They could pay rent, but they couldn't get a deposit. So that was home ownership and shared ownership. We wanted to help people who wanted, uh, who chose market rent properties, because that's just what they wanted. There's a market for that. And we obviously wanted to help people through social housing, which is 60% of market rent, and affordable housing, which is 80% of market rent. And we also wanted to provide a range of services for people. So we also had a big supported housing arm that provided specific housing for people with a disability or they were elderly or something that they required support around. Now, let's just talk about, let's talk about the, in a sense, the traditional entry route into places for people, which is the people on the social housing list. And then we'll go to the various segments of society that you've been creating product for, which I, I agree with, right? So let's just go back a bit, right? Because in Australia, and I know you know Australia quite well, the um, there's been a, a massive residualization of social housing, public housing stock, where it's now down to below, in New South Wales, below 4% of all housing stock is social stock public housing so it's rather like in the uk that there's there's a race to the bottom to get into it right so that you you're effectively almost helping create problems in a way because you can't get into um supported housing until you show how desperate you are as it were right so we've moved away from what actually was here at the end of the second world war and for about 20 years which is public and social housing as two things one is more general needs housing you know so people from all sorts of backgrounds getting into it 
homes fit for he for heroes, but also the state, the government used to help people get into ownership in Australia in a, in a far in a direct route, not just rely on the private sector to do it, which is what we do now, but actually be we're part of the mix, right? Now, go back to social. Let's go back to so, let's go back to social need the people on the on the kind of social housing waiting list. You mentioned something very interesting there. See, I, you know this, and I, I grew up in public housing in the 1960s, very different in Wales, very different era. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City series. Um, my main point in all this is you actually do support services, don't you, for, uh, for some of your yes. tenants? Can you say a bit about the extra services that you, are, that you try yes. uh, to apply and, and what they do? Well... In the UK, and it's different in different parts of the world, if someone needs, if you're an elderly person and you're in a retirement place or you're in a sheltered housing scheme or you're um, escaping domestic violence and you're in a centre for homeless people or you're a street sleeper, then there needs to be specific support for you as well as a roof over your head. And the way that's funded is by a series of service charges and I think it's true to say that what is described as exempt housing here, I'll explain that in a minute, um, is in a bit of a mess. There's recently been a parliamentary select committee report about exempt housing. So the exempt housing is exempt because it's not subject to the rent settlement. So every year the government agrees a certain proportion of rents that can be increased but exempt housing, because it's supported housing and requires these services, it's exempt from that rule. So it's a technical thing. But fundamentally, yes, we did provide, we did provide services, and there's a lot of interest in providing that. Like most parts of the world, our elderly population's rising, uh, people are more frail, and there needs to be uh, provision for accommodation where these services are, are in place. But yes, and we design them differently and build them differently, but they're still affordable. So you've got um, people on the social housing waiting lists, and some of them might have a variety of challenges or problems, yes. and you have some role to play, or you've found some resource yes. to help a range of them to either meet their needs or maybe even to develop, do you do some yes. around social capital stuff, around developing skills? Are there any, any, any skills initiatives in places? Yeah, lots of skills, lots of youth training, lots of, uh, for me, this is at the essence of this is I'm a ferocious fan of placemaking. And right. again, lots of people say this, right? But a place for me is somewhere <clears throat> where I'd live myself, where it deals with all aspects of my life and not just my housing need. And it also helps me live my life in the best way possible, which all sounds semantics, but that leads you into a whole series of services like employment training about, um, for example, teaching elderly people how to use the internet. It's a whole raft of things. It also drives the development process. So you're bothered about the shopping center, you're bothered about the school. Um, when you're developing a new place as a developer, you think about these things. You don't see infrastructure as an afterthought or a cost. You see it as potentially an income stream and a key part of that quality. There's no doubt that an area that's been planned like this with proper infrastructure, commands better prices, both rent and for sale, than an area that hasn't. 
Um, and I've argued with many people over many years about this. And eventually, when certainly in my last year, we just did it. We just acquired large sites, built them out, um, set the standard. Um, the first was massive scheme in Milton Keynes, two and a half thousand homes. First thing we did with the council was put a junior school in. Nobody had ever done that before. No. Um, because the, the argument was you built the housing, you took a proportion of profit, then you put the infrastructure in. But that's not a community. Yeah. So I think new thinking about this requires high levels of partnership. Again, everybody says they're great partners, but why aren't there more of them then? So there's a real craft, I think, and it's interesting about your super comma earlier. Yeah. Because five years ago, the large um, capital investors in the UK were encouraged and got involved in affordable housing. So the first was Regis and Blackstone, who established Sage Homes. Um, they're now, I think it's just three and a half billion in, and there are over 50 of these organizations now. Now, traditional providers don't need to see that as a threat, in my view. Um, they need to see it as not a zero-sum game, i.e. zero-sum game implies there's only so much money and we fight each other over it. I'm interested in making a pie bigger. So if you've got the zero-sum game and you, you have more providers come in, assuming that you can increase supply as well, because I think that's a good point, yeah. then additionality could occur. But it's already happened in the UK. What you're seeking to do in Australia has already happened here. And some of these outfits, I mean, Legal and General are in. Legal and General, yeah. I was, going, yeah. I was going to mention our mutual friend, Ben Denton, uh, you know, yes. runs the affordable housing side of LNG, and I've been talking to him. Yes. Recently, I've been quite impressed by the progress. I think LNG generally are one of the big housing providers in the UK now. So this has been a big shift. Well, Sage Homes is the biggest. Right. Because, well, one, because they really went for it. And secondly, because they had the vision to do it first. Yeah. And about 50 others followed them. So it's a really good example of where you could get to if that capital was mobilised. And increasing now what's starting to happen, the for-profits are financing the development programs of existing traditional providers. So there genuinely is a for additionality. So say well, you've got to deal with Optivo. Yeah. And so this is a model there for how this could be done. So this is crucial, I think. The For me, additionality is a problem, right? So everything else that we've tried in Australia has literally boiled down to one develop, one business model in the market, which is the developer model. And as you know, they, they have to turn the tap off when the demand goes down and they, they don't go through cycles very well. They, 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 they boom and they slow and they boom and they slow and they never really get to a point of, of creating that additional demand uh, supply that we need. So we need new new business models, not just new tenures, but new business models that are not subject to the same regimes and the same market constraints, not quite. And I think that is absolutely right. The diversity is required to get additionality. And I uh, and I think it's great. And I think the um, I think that we are on the point in Australia of getting, you know, the sort of social that the, the um, the superannuation people into, but as, as long as it's quite critical for me that they don't just invest in the usual developer model. You know, we don't need extra finance for that. You know, the, uh, that will just add to the price of a home. We, we, we actually need yeah, well, the way, new models. The way it worked here 
is that Regis and Blackstone, who are development partners with Sage Homes, the regulator requires them to register as a for-profit provider, and that's the way that's handled, right? Um, so there's some degree of oversight, similar to community uh, housing providers of old, and that's working. I mean, it's a, it's a new thing. It's only been going five years, but there's evidence that it is creating additionality. Yeah. And they are providing traditional, affordable, and shared ownership homes in the in the normal way. Can we can we just do the, do the horizon a bit? The, the, so you've got in England the traditional developers, your Wimpies and Barretts. They 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 do their for sale at, at land risk model, and they do quite a lot. And then you've got uh, the social housing providers who often actually help, are buying effectively acquiring units off the private developers through a mechanism in the UK. We don't call it this, but essentially it's inclusionary zoning. Uh, for example, in London, where what between 35 and 49% of a development over 10 homes um, must be a social or affordable unit or shared equity in some form. So that creates a bit of a pipeline. Then you've got these new entrants to the, to the market, which is interesting from the kind of pension fund, insurance fund background. You've also got, uh, to finish the picture, uh, a couple of things emerging, built to rent, which we should talk about, because that's there's a lot of interest in built around in Australia mm -hmm. and other parts. Obviously, America's been doing it for a long time. Uh, and then you've also got this um, local housing company kind of stuff that I was quite interested in back in the day, where the local authorities are doing a lot more, either in, the, in their own right or in partnership with the private sector and CHPs like Embarking or something. Could, could you say something about built to yeah, rent? That, 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 well, built to rent is um, people investing in market rent, that is whatever the rent is for market in that place, entirely private sector. Um, and it's grown to try to ape some of the American condominium, uh, multifamily type developments that you see. Yeah. But the UK is not the same market as US, so outside the major cities, it's not growing as fast as it could do, but it's all great. Any investment increased housing choice has got yeah. my vote. Yeah. Um, so is it increasing as just yes it is is it bringing more capital to bear yes it is is it a good thing on the whole yes it is it's still dealing with some of the on the bigger multi-family developers the idea of providing a bunch of services because that obviously impacts on margin but nonetheless it's a good thing and it is growing one of the reasons why got, sorry go on. one of the reasons why i like it particularly in australia where what we've done here, even more than in the UK, where we've done a lot of this, is incentivized mum and dad landlords where, and I think over-incentivized, so we, we end up with people owning two and three units that they really don't manage that well and they, they don't necessarily invest in properly. They're not great at being landlords, and I quite like the idea of the professionalization of this through Build to Rent. Um, that's my prejudice. Um, tell us a bit about um, local housing companies. Local housing companies are local authorities. Um, well, to be honest, I think any organization has to make a decision at some point about whether it wants to be in charge of the problem or part of the solution. So there's a danger with all of these entities that they set up an entity in order to be in charge of the problem rather than coalesce and work with others to be part of the solution. I'm not exercising semantics here. It matters to me a lot. So if a local authority wants to build local authority housing, 
They could probably get equity finance to do that. It doesn't have to compete directly. And sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But come back to my key um, activities about pragmatism and making a difference. Whatever is the practical way of getting something built should be the way. And if local housing companies is the right way in that locality, fantastic. Uh, but I think there's a there's a race to organizational format rather than a race to the solution, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah. it worries me a bit. So I'm not against local housing companies. I think they're great. I think it could be a great, a great framework for working with others. But if it's just another bit of competition for non-additionality, I don't think it helps. I also think that's true about equity as well. If it's just fighting um, for the same resource, then that on its own isn't great. But we come back to one of the things we haven't touched on, and that's the supply side. So very few housing associations in the UK build homes. Place people did and still does. And I think one of the big challenges for community um, housing organisations elsewhere, and it's a challenge for them, is the degree to which they want to get involved in being their own developer. Yeah, I think yeah. they should. So do I. And I also think they should focus on small and medium enterprise construction businesses because they're the ones who need cash flow and downturns. Yeah. They're the ones who will probably be good clients over the long term. I'm not saying not don't work with the big guys. Of course you do. But I think a much broader view about supporting the supply side as well as just wanting to go down I call it going down the housing shop. So you go down the housing shop and you'd quite like to buy a hundred of these, but often there isn't one. So you might need to get involved in more involved in the manufacture of that, supporting the smaller developers with land purchase, supporting supporting them in their build programs. And there's some risk in that. I'm not arguing there isn't. Um, but but I think, could, yeah. But look, your point, I think, by the way, and we we haven't expelled it out, but I think this is part of your point is the. The uh, RSL, the, the community housing providers, should be the developers in their own in their own right. Uh, they can contract with smaller builders, which I think is a good a good idea. Why? Um, because unless they don't have their own development chain with their own business model, they'll still be reliant on the private sector to produce the units. And if the private sector's got problems because the market is shifted, then the, the community housing providers have problems finding the stock. Although, of course. The great news at that point is, and I remember doing this, which is when we had the crash in 2008, 9 and 10, we bought an awful lot of distressed housing units off the private sector in 2010. And actually, I think in 2010, the government was the biggest developer in London uh, after, after the crash because we were doing this. And by the way, I wouldn't doubt that there are distressed units coming at us in Australia from the current uh, housing correction that's uh, that's going on. Look, where I want yeah. to go to, I want to sum up what we've done. I think your brilliant career, if I may call it that, is all about this, which is the turning of something that was pretty good anyway to something really, really good with a lot of uh, growth, financial engineering, uh, diversification of the assets. You're very clear about the strategy, but you're also very clear about the outcomes that you wanted for people. There's a lot of placemaking emphasis, which also raised value. 
you're really into uh, like social capital development of the people that are in your units. You know, you want to do stuff with them that's not just about housing, but support them. So let's do a little bit about what are your, I call them greatest hits at the, at the beginning. Well, let's say, what are things that you're proudest about? First, with, you know, it's called places for people. Let's do people first. What are things, and then I want to go to your your view of what's happening out there at the moment and where we go in the future. But let's do, what are you proudest about in, in, in terms of people, the people side of your work? Well, we have a, a well. We developed a massive social impact program. So um, this was 14 years ago, before ESG was uh, gracing the lips of everybody. But it seemed to us that if we could multiply our effect um, by our activities, we should start to record it. So we did, and we created a director of social impact. And I think now, from memory about 290 million of social impact is produced by the group every year. I'm, my numbers might be rusty because I've been every year, um, but it's measured. So support and housing is, is one element, employment training. Um, the, the, the group has a, a charitable entity, which then grant funds all sorts of things. And we also had an interesting commercial approach to solving problems. So for example, we did regeneration schemes and young women were saying they couldn't get a job because they couldn't get childcare. So how hard can it be? We became a nursery provider, places for children, right? Set 12 nurseries up, got them away, got those people childcare. Did we want to own it? No. So having achieved it, we sold the business. So there are commercial ways of solving social issues for me. And that strong commercial method for social impact is really where you've got to go, it seems to me. Because it, without it, you're endlessly beholden to others. You are necessarily, it seems to me, constrained. And the additionality that could occur, perhaps doesn't occur. So if I'm not arguing that, develop, that the community housing organisations become developers for the sake of it. I think quite a few of them couldn't do it or wouldn't want to, that's fine. But some of them ought to. And some of them ought to get stronger partnership links with large and, and medium and small providers, uh, developers. And there needs to be a lot more eclecticism in terms of the responses people have rather than just saying it has to be like this. And that's if I leave anything, it's that desire to look for a solution that isn't obvious now. So you, you've been had an impact. It's great that you're measuring social impact. Nobody does that. You've done that. That's great. And you've also innovated in terms of your structures and finances. Let's just a little bit about one more about that. Are you a big supporter of the idea of scale in terms of uh, community housing provider scale? You'll know that in Australia, we, you know, five and 10,000 would be a very big ownership base for a, for a most our, our community housing providers. Some are trying to bust through that, but they're bounded by the states. The states won't let them take assets across the boundary, as it were. So we've got a bit of a problem with scale. Are you also, sorry, I think you're a supporter of scale, but are you a supporter also of stock transfer? Was that a big issue? Because well, there are 100,000 homes. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell me what do you think the pros and cons of stock transfer, which is literally, to explain to people who don't know this, underfunded public housing, which is what we have in New South Wales and most states, uh, actually has no uh, obvious pathway to get new resources from the current governments who don't particularly love it, uh, whatever colour they are, they don't particularly love it and they don't spend enough on it. So in England, for political reasons, but also resource reasons, to be fair, uh, the government of the time, Maggie and afterwards, 
there are big stock transfer schemes to people like yourself. You picked up some, I, I, I imagine. Um, and that meant literally you were buying at a subsidised rate to some degree, um, a, a housing estate or a, or a large number yeah. of units. And then, in, and then using that asset base to develop and invest in, upgrade, uh, maybe build more, right? So stock transfer was useful in the UK? I think it was. And there is a big issue about stranded assets because the other thing we've not talked about is sustainability. Yep. So there's a whole argument and a whole issue about the sustainability of existing housing stock in all sectors, by the way. It's not just social And equally, there's an under-focus on looking at existing social housing, affordable housing, real estate, and redeveloping it, densifying it, so you get more additionality, reusing the land. So it needs to be a very um, broad strategy. So I wouldn't necessarily just say, oh, let's stop transfers the answer. Within the context of a sensible plan about how this neighbourhood could support more affordable housing or more housing generally or be better or have uh, more economically active people in it, uh, who keep the shops and the pubs open because they're currently closed, all that sort of stuff. I don't know about you, Tim, but I, I think you support this. I'm a big believer in speaking fluent human, um, and a lot of ways that people engage local communities just falls on deaf ears because it's, frankly, nonsense. Yeah. But if you talk to people I find, in a, well, how are we going to keep the pub open? How are we going to get the shops yeah, yeah, better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have a much more coherent discussion. Now, like, I like that, that. you need yeah. stock transfer to make that happen, then no, I, I like support that. it. I like that. I like the fact that it's based on an analysis of what might be needed in specific locations or whatever, and it could be stock transfer, but it could be uh, an innovative public-private partnership to intensify and develop. But it's it's like horses for courses. You don't necessarily reach for the one, the, like it's not just a one-trick pony, right? So I think that's that's absolutely right. They've been trying, to be fair, um, some of the, uh, some private, public collaborations in New South Wales around housing estates. I think part of the challenge is that the way they do appraisals, they don't quite understand it, but not enough areas across Sydney are deemed to be producing enough value to be, to enable this to happen. But I'm, I'm not an expert in that. But I like the idea of trying to find new resources and to solve these problems by this kind of innovation. So let's, let's just pause there, uh, except I will ask a question about Australia. So, and then I want to go to what you're doing now and then your prognostications and predictions for the future. So the Australian situation strikes me across the country, the two problems, ownership is stalled. So young people and people of, of certain uh, incomes just can't get into it, like as you know, like they would have done 40, 50 years ago. Um, secondly, we've got big social housing waiting lists. So we've got problems at these two ends. You, you know, you, you've done all this kind of stuff, and I, you know, two or three things that you think we should be looking at in the Australian context, given what you know. Head ownership, definitely, and um, some creativity around forms of fractional ownership um, would be another area for some work. But there's a big issue for me, and I, I don't want to go off on tangents, but the reality is, I don't think anywhere in the world anybody really understands how the housing market works. No, I, I agree. So they tweak it one bit, and it unravels over over here. It's a bit like my, my granny doing a jump. You know, she pulled this it's, out. It's, it's amazing. This report I haven't yet written starts with the idea that we first have to explain to ourselves what we mean by the housing market, yeah. and the uh, and it's amazing the extent to which 
I, leading people don't seem to understand uh, things like um, residual land value or, or you know, that yeah. land economics is a bit different to economic economics, you know, the skill yeah. <laughs> stuff. So I, I completely well, agree with you. I, I did a job because I was a visiting policy fellow at Cambridge at School of Housing and Planning. We did a little paper for don't get fancy with I, me. Don't get fancy with no, me. No, you no, know I'm, I'm explaining. I did a little paper which was, you know, one of these, the answer to the problems of the world yeah. thing. And it concluded the same thing. We could come up with a million reasons and million plans and a million good ideas, but we don't really know what they would do. So I'll send you this thing, see if it's any good. Not, but, people, uh, people don't even agree what they mean by the word affordable, for God's sake. You know, so come on. Right. Now, now, so let's go to two or three things that you're up to at the moment. You've got a range of you're chairing this, that, and the other. What uh, uh, What is this wonder wall? And what, name, name two oh, things, well, up, it, and then uh, tell me where it, you think this is, is all going. There's a few things. Well, I've never been retired before, Tim, so I don't really yeah. know what I'm doing. So I, I work with people I like, and I think are creative and smart. So Regis, I've already mentioned, I work with, with them a lot, and um, I really enjoy their pragmatic um, creativity, is a good way to describe it. I'm a big fan, it sounds happy now, but I've always been a big fan about trying to come up with technical solutions to improve sustainability. So I work with Synergy, who are a large-scale um, provider of uh, renewable energy networks for neighbourhoods. So they'll fund all the renewable energy for the whole neighbourhood needs, takes it off the grid. Um, Wonderwall is an interesting business. They're, they're more focused on individual property, and they have a proprietary system that reduces energy costs by at least half, right? Um, the, every light, light switch is 13 sensors, so I'm quite enjoying that. And I also work with a business called Human Nature Places, which seeks, it has an outrageous ambition. It wants to be the most um, sustainable developer in the world. And its first scheme is at Lewis in East Sussex. And everything about this development is, is, is sustainable. Everything. The farm, the shopping, the hotel, the healthcare, the transport. It's got a renewable uh, energy network. All the houses are based on co-living. I'm really enjoying that. And is it a, is it a, is it a private sector developer? Is it got a, uh, what yes, is it? Exactly? Private sector developer, um, yeah. and it's backed by a lot of very inspiring people who were very active in Greenpeace. Um, so it's interesting, and I also work with a couple of tech companies, and um, I work for, with um, a, a couple of capital businesses. So I'm, I'm just doing all sorts of interesting things, trying to come up with some of the answers to some of these issues, but they have to be practical. And your fundamental point is if they're not commercially sustainable, they don't happen. So let's just end on, on that point then, right? So um, as you move towards, you know, applying your innovative thinking to bits of the private sector, but still trying to do social, socially beneficial impact, I would imagine. So here's, here's, a, here's a conundrum. Uh, when I was working back in the day, when I was, you know, as you know, single-handedly wrecking the British housing uh, market <laughs> to the ministers at the time of the crash, uh, the um, we discovered that the uh, there were a couple of natural constraints on the delivery of the uh, by the housing developers because they're their own business model. The great Tony Pitchley, Barclay Homes, uh, you know, explained to me the real business model of the developers, which is not a, they don't make their money by oversupplying, Tim, is what he is essentially said to me. So, so, we, so, so we, we didn't find that they were very innovative. And in fact, 
they were almost um, uh, there was almost there was very little innovation in their in their way that they they all did the same sort of business model. They all did the same sort of thing. And therefore, they went up and down at the same time, which didn't help us. But also, um, public housing had been associated in back in the day with innovation a lot. You know, it was almost as though because the private sector doesn't have a very innovative business model, much of the experimentation around things like design, things like technology, things like uh, energy actually used to come from the public sector, which used to take a risk with innovating, partly, I guess, because it didn't worry about consumers <laughs> too much. But let's just say we, we miss that. You know, if we don't do public housing and don't innovate with somebody else taking the risk, there's not a lot dribbling into the private sector that they can borrow and learn from, right? So, But you seem to be saying that you are working with people who are trying to bring innovation into what I think is a rather conservative British housing market, actually. Well, I think we've got to try things and then demonstrate practically. So people will acquire things if it works. And that's really important. It's a good point you make about real people. So if you have to have a PhD in hydraulic engineering to work the heating system, unsurprisingly, people won't use it. So it has to be fluent human again, something that works, something that engages with real, real life and real people and something that's commercially sustainable. That's not, it's not as easy to do as it is to say. No, but you remind me, you've got me laughing though, because I, I, I had to explain once when I was working for the government to bureaucrats, it was really marvelous meetings where I was the only person in 20 that had ever grown up in public housing that they were all talking about and all this kind of stuff. And it was very fascinating. But I explained to them once, they were being very, very um, dismissive of people in some part of the country that were in the habit of burning down doors and stuff like that in order to heat themselves. Yeah. And that's because the central heating system is not, it's not that they're natural vandals, they're just being practical, you know, sort of, can't you see that they're trying to tell us something about, yeah. about what was going on? Anyway, so so I think you're absolutely right that the speaking human is quite important. I think you do that quite fluently. Doing quite human things is also, I think, quite important. And then explaining to people the link uh, between the you know your business and what you're what you're trying to do. I mean, I think that um, I, I just want to end with this. I mean, I'm not just saying this. I've known you a while now, but I, you always make me think and laugh, which I think is very very important. But the you've done some great things. You and your friends and colleagues. And I know it's not a one man band, but you've been quite a leader. You know in in not just places with people, but in the sector. I think some of the stuff you said tonight is very inspirational because it's not just words. It's about stuff you've been doing over 25 years. And I think the proof uh, of the pudding has been in the eating. There's lots of exemplary stuff that people internationally can look at when they look at the trajectory of places for people. And you've ended with that it's not over yet. It's, uh, it's You're still innovating. You're still looking for delivering the goods. And more power to your elbow. And I, I rather hope that we can... Just as, as I'm urging people listening to track the people up to when you left it last year, that they should now track your next uh, stuff because it'll be good. It'll be interesting and it'll be useful. So on that note, unless you've got something else to say to me, then I think I will say, <laughs> David Cowens, thank you very much for your time and the work that you've been doing. And I say to those people who are listening internationally, really, there's been some great innovation in place of people and other parts of the British community housing sector. And we also dwelt on the fact that there's some private sector innovation been coming, not just from the developers traditionally, but the pension funds and new entrants to the housing market and all that stuff we need to see pr proliferate in, in, in places like Australia, where there's been, I think, an overdominance of one kind of market provider. We need to see a thousand flowers bloom and we seek inspiration from my friend, David Cowens. Thank you, David. 
You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.